0: Uh, We're in a series called The Story, where we've been journeying through the entire narrative of the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, which is happening next week, uh, and we've only got two chapters left. And in this story, we've been learning how God works all of it together, that he takes the small stories, the lower stories, if you will, and he blends them and weaves them uh, into a grand narrative of Him wanting to get our attention, and it points to Jesus Christ. And this morning, I'm thrilled because I get to talk to you about Paul's final days. Now, Paul, he was known as the Apostle to the Gentiles, and if you caught Daisy's message last week, it was phenomenal. She spent a lot of time focusing on this message that Paul was so passionate about and why it was worth him being willing to give his life. And today we turn to looking at um, him kind of at the end of his days and sort of his final days. And as I was thinking about it, uh, where I first kind of fell in love with the Apostle Paul and his teachings was actually at uh, seminary. And so I've got a book here, and Harry's going to help me out. He'll bring up uh, an image for you. Uh, This is a tomb of a book, uh, 700 pages, and i tried my best to read the whole thing, but after 100 pages, I said I wasn't going to read the footnotes because they were too long, but it was a great book. Anyways, the thing that I found most inspiring actually about this book and has continued to inspire me is the picture on the front cover. And now, uh, as you see there on your screen, it's a picture of St. Paul painted by Rembrandt uh, in the 1600s. And one of the things I love about this picture is the look on Paul's face. He's aged He's old, he looks spent, as though he's given absolutely everything for the cause that God had called him to. And if you look closely, you see there's light coming in from the window, and it's shining on Paul. But there's another light there too. There's a light illuminating from the scriptures. And this morning, we're going to spend some time in uh, focusing on Paul's final days. So here, you can cut that photo. And so, just so you know where my head is at this morning, um, what I'm going to do is I'm going to focus on kind of a, a Kickstarter verse out of Romans um, that Paul had said, and I think it's often an idea that we miss. And and it's a verse that actually challenges me and frustrates me. We're going to take a look at that, and then I want to jump into several different stories of sort of when I see sort of Paul's final days finally getting kick-started, and we'll move through uh, four or five different scenes and some scripture exploring that. And then finally, I want to arrive at the very end. I want to arrive at um, what I would describe as Paul's Epitaph. Now, an epitaph is this notion of sort of those final summarizing phrases or words that end up on your tombstone or end up on a plaque, and they describe the the sum of your life. And I believe that we shouldn't leave our epitaphs for somebody else to write for us, but it should be something that we ourselves live into and write. And I believe that in uh, Second Timothy, which is where we're going to end up, um, there's. Paul writes something of his own epitaph that I, that I think is worth us giving some consideration to this morning. And then our service is going to end uh, with communion. I'll lead us up to a response where I've got the elements set out here. And if at any point uh, you're able to just sort of pause the video, you can go and grab some elements. We'll, we'll do communion at the end of today's service. So... I was thinking about epitaphs. An example of an epitaph would be, uh, I was looking online, and there was a couple I found that were quite interesting. There was one, he says this, and I quote, he says, I knew if I waited around long enough, something like this would happen. Written on a tombstone. Makes sense. Another one I came across, and I hope this really isn't uh, an actual one, but I found it. It says 2,132 likes. Ooh, mm, I don't know if I'd want that written on my tombstone. I was looking through some of, uh, uh, working with our students, I was looking through some of our junior highs, and we'd had them considering um, what they would like to leave behind as a legacy during one of our series. And as I was flipping through, uh, we had them kind of be goofy and write funny comments, but then we also had a point where we wanted them to be serious. And I was blessed because I found one junior high student, I mean, many wrote a lot of good stuff, but one in particular, he said, I want to be known for the way that I loved my family. I thought, wow, coming from a junior high student, that's awesome. That's, some, that's an epitaph worth pursuing, something worth living into, being known for how you embraced others in love and the way that you loved your family. So the familiar verse that I'd like to start with this morning is one that has caused me a lot of grief. When we look at the life of Paul, we see that he was no stranger to suffering. He was no stranger to sorrow uh, and challenging situations. But he wrote these he wrote these words in Romans 8:28 and 29. And you've probably heard these these are very common scriptures. It says, "And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose." But those verses have been frustrating to me because sometimes when you're going through a really difficult circumstance, sometimes those act like sort of what somebody just says to make you feel better. But I find them frustrating in that when I hear them, I don't necessarily feel better. I feel like, great, I'm, I'm suffering and that's just the way that it's going to be and God's going to work it to good. And I think the challenge and the frustrating part about it for me anyways, is I don't think I totally understand or grasp what Paul means by when he says good. That God works all things for good. You see, I think I have a different way of defining good than the way that God does. For me, good is not suffering, not being in pain, not being uncomfortable. And yet, God doesn't spare us from those things. We encounter suffering and the call to perseverance almost every day of life. But I think Paul goes on here in the very next verse to describe what the good is. And here it is in verse 29. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. That the good that God is trying to achieve in your life and in mine is to conform us into the image of Jesus. Now, one of the things I don't like about that is this word conformed sounds like it's not a fast process. It sounds like there it takes Time. It's a slow process. I would much rather see, to be honest, I'd much rather see the word transformed here, where God simply transforms us, changes us, in a twinkling of an eye, makes us like Jesus. And yet, that's not what Paul says. He says, God desires to conform us into the image of Jesus. So it's something that's going to take time. However, God's desire is the same His desire is this to make you and me look. A lot more like Jesus. I believe that that was the same adventure or journey that the Apostle Paul was on, particularly in his final days. And so I'm excited. If you want, uh, you can turn with me in your Bibles. We'll. we'll I'll give a bit of an introduction, but we're, we're going to start in Acts uh, chapter 20. And Acts is a great book. It was written by a man named Luke, who wrote the Gospel of Luke, and he also wrote Acts. And we're going to hang out there. And, and Luke is a great guy to go to and read these stories about Paul, because Luke spent a lot of time actually traveling with Paul, being on these adventures with him. And you'll notice that through his work, that he, he, he transitions throughout Acts of talking about um, not being in the first person and being in the first person in terms of encountering these things. So he journeyed with Paul. But when you think about when did Paul's last days actually begin, it can be be kind of difficult because we don't actually have any biblical literature that is right there following his last week. We know from tradition that uh, he was in Rome and he was beheaded there in and around the same time that the Apostle Peter, who was crucified upside down, both of them, very different deaths, but they both died for their faith in Jesus Christ. And it was likely at the hands of uh, Emperor Nero, who is this, you this know, notorious emperor during the time, who just, whose life was riddled with deceit and feuds and, uh, and war and backstabbing and murder. And uh, history tells us a lot about his account, and that's sort of beyond where we're going this morning, um, but it's in that time frame. But in reading Luke's account and jumping into Paul's letters, we do get a sense of where there was this transition. Where Paul was traveling, uh, doing missionary journeys, uh, visiting with people, planting churches, raising people up to lead these churches. But then we come to an interesting part in Acts 20, where we see a shift. And it's in verse 16. It says, Paul decided to sail past Ephesus to avoid spending time in the province of Asia. He was in a hurry to reach Jerusalem, if possible, before the, by the day of Pentecost. So we see here in this opening scene, we see Paul is in a hurry. And if you're like me, I'm always thinking in sort of music. And so in my mind, the soundtrack to this is I'm in a hurry and don't know why by Alabama. Okay, that's up. Paul's in a hurry. And it's interesting that he's reluctant to go to Asia here. He still wants to connect with the leaders from, from Ephesus. And so he bypasses their area. But at his next stop, these verses show that he calls for the leaders of Ephesus to come to him. And he spends time with them, encouraging them and talking to them. But it's a tender scene because he tells them that this is the last time that you're ever going to see me. There's something driving Paul. Paul urging him forward on this last journey. And we see it in verses 22 and 23. He says, And now, compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem. Not knowing what will happen to me there, I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. Much like Jesus in the Gospels, where there's a point where Jesus fixes his face towards Jerusalem and knows what God is asking him to do, so too in the life of Paul, we see him fix his face on Jerusalem. There's this compelling of a spirit. It's not just a a hunch or a notion that it'd be a good thing to go to Jerusalem. It's a compelling in his spirit that's saying, with an urgency saying, you need to get there. And here we see something of Paul's character and his composure. He's not frightened off by prison, and he's not frightened off by this notion of having to face hardships. He faces them head on. It reminds me, you know, it's probably been five, six years now um, since I was living in Calgary with my wife and our children. We're living in, in uh, Jenna's dad's house with him. I was doing some school, and I was looking for an internship. And I remember being on the phone with Pastor Steve and talking about the opportunities that Musha had. And you know, uh, Steve did a great job that day. obviously, I'm here in Musha, but he did a great job of, of selling the opportunities and what Musha was like as a community and the work that Hillcrest was doing uh, in Musha. However, had he told me that the only thing he knew for certain was that hardships and prison awaited me if I came to Musha? well, I probably would have said, click next caller, please. Right? We don't, we don't run towards suffering. We don't run towards hardship. In fact, everything in the way that we're wired, we want to avoid those things. And yet Paul doesn't. Paul understands those things await him, and he perseveres. And we know why in verse 24. He says, however, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Those words are worth rereading. He considers his life nothing to him. His only aim is to finish the race and complete the task that Jesus has given him. Now, I know Paul understood that his life wasn't worthless in terms of invaluable. Because there'd be wrong thinking in that too, to think that we're garbage and that our life, you know, it's worth nothing. Because that, that's not what he's saying. It has immense value. Because he is an object of God's love, grace, and affection. Completing what Jesus had asked him to do becomes the most important thing to Paul and testifying to God's grace. For Paul, life was about so much more than just living for himself and tending to his own needs and trying to get ahead. He was captivated, captured, obsessed by a greater vision, something that Jesus had revealed to him. That was his only aim. Prison and hardship could not scare him off. So in light of not knowing really what was ahead, Paul, though in a hurry, he knows why he's in a hurry, to testify about the good news of God's grace. And this scene uh, closes in Acts in a really intimate moment. He's there with the Ephesian leaders. They're all gathered together. They kneel. They pray. It says they weep. They embrace. They kiss. All this stuff that we're not doing because of COVID-19 right now. But I think that helps us appreciate the scene a little bit better. We know what we're missing in, 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 in those handshakes on a Sunday morning or those hugs or those high fives. I got to tell you, I mean, my favorite thing on Wednesday nights was high-fiving students as they come in the door. And I mean, Zoom's got a, a virtual high-five function, but it just doesn't cut it. It's just seeing people's smiling faces and having that hand-to-hand contact and eye-to-eye contact. It goes on in, in uh, verse 21. It talks about how there's actually this tearing. Paul. They're torn away from each other. Luke describes it in Acts as something ripping, something tearing. It's, it's not a happy departure. It's a sad departure because they know they won't be seeing Paul again. However, Paul has strong convictions about what God is doing. And how many of you know that your strong convictions don't only just affect you, they affect other people around you? And so in our next scene here, uh, scene two, we see how Paul's um, convictions impact other people. Uh, The story, uh, as the story unfolds, we see uh, Paul responding to others, uh, or people responding to Paul's conviction. Uh, there's more traveling, uh, more ships, more stopping and more visiting with believers. And we see here in, uh, in verse four that everywhere he would go, he would stop and he would seek out other believers. And so in this one case, he seeks out other believers and he says, we sought out the disciples there and stayed with them seven days. Get this, through the spirit, they urged Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Jerusalem. The Spirit, does that mean that Paul disobeyed? Does that mean that Paul went against what the Spirit was leading? I don't think so. I think what happens is I think the Spirit gave those disciples a clear indication of what awaited Paul. And I think like any loving friends, they didn't want Paul to go through that. They didn't want him to face that. So their conclusion was, Paul, you shouldn't go. You shouldn't go to Jerusalem because hardships await you there. And yet, their conclusions, their conclusions were wrong, even though their convictions were right. That's why it's so important that when God stirs our heart or there's a move of a spirit, that we actually hold those things with open hands. Because sometimes I find we're easily drawing conclusions about things that maybe isn't what God is wanting to direct. And I think that's the case here. Uh, as the story actually goes on, there's a bit more uh, traveling again. And again in verse 10, we find him there and uh, it reads this. It says, After we'd been there a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Coming over to us, you can note the us language, the we language. This is Luke writing. He's with Paul. This prophet takes Paul's belt, ties his own hands and his own feet with it and says, Holy Spirit, And the Holy Spirit says, in this way, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. Agabus, of course, is a a fellow believer and the, the Spirit of God has shown him this. I don't know about you, but when I read scripture, I sort of imagine the scene in my head and I think about, I think about, it would have been interesting to see this unfold because like this prophet comes into the midst and he he takes Paul's belt. Was he wearing it? Uh, I don't know. That would be kind of weird. But he takes Paul's belt. And then he ties up his own hands. And not just his hands. He ties up his feet with this belt. I think that would have been a bit awkward. And the whole time people are watching you, like, tie knots in this and tie yourself up. Like, at what point do you drop the punchline about, like, this is what the Holy Spirit says. You're going to be tied up like this. I don't know. It's interesting. These are the questions I have for the test. But the bottom line, we know that Paul is in trouble. And the believers are aware of it. The Spirit is showing them what he's going to be going through. It's not going to go well. And they don't want Paul to go. Then verse 12, it says, When we heard this, we and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Again, the we language. Luke is in on this. Even though he's traveling with Paul and knows his intentions, he doesn't want Paul to suffer. He doesn't want Paul to go through the torment that awaits him. Everyone's on board. Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. I guess it makes sense that they don't want him to go. It would have been awkward had they had some insight into where God was leading them. Him leading Paul and they just said, yeah, go for it, right? As loving friends, they don't want him to go through suffering. But then we have Paul's answer in verse 13. He says, Why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I'm ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Wow. It's not just trials and hardships. But Paul knows that he's facing the very loss of his life. And yet, there's a commitment, there's a dedication to the task that Jesus had called him to, and he's persevering. Verse 14, we read, When Paul would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said, The Lord's will be done. Paul wouldn't be dissuaded, um, and in the end, they had to surrender and trust that the Lord's will would be done If I had to queue up another song, um, it's even before my time, but it's titled Love Hurts by Nazareth. You'll probably hit pause and Google it, won't you? But anyways, (laughs) in the, the songwriters, their conclusion is that love is a lie because it, and it keeps you blue because it hurts. But the truth is, is that love bears much hurt. It bears much pain. It perseveres through much trial. And that's the great thing about love, isn't it? Is that it's a powerful force and it's not just there when things are going good and you're happy and excited. But love is actually the very strength that gets you through difficult times. God's love is enough. We move on uh, to another scene and this time we finally see Paul. He's arriving in Jerusalem. Jerusalem. And honestly, this is where it gets very interesting. This is where it gets more than just a little intense. And this story is worth spending some time in. Paul arrives in Jerusalem and his first stop is actually to go meet with other believers. And the church is doing well there. It's led by James, the half-brother of Jesus. And Paul checks in with them, and he gives them account of of all the amazing things that God is doing amongst the Gentiles. That they're hearing the gospel of Jesus. They're being filled with the Spirit, and it's awesome. They're coming to salvation. And the church is excited, but they have some sort of requests that they're making of Paul. And it's interesting, I won't go into it, but here we see that Paul, even though he, he, he models strong convictions, when he's dealing with church leadership, he remains flexible on non-essentials. He says, for the sake of the gospel, I can, I can submit or be obedient in these things that you're asking of me. We see love in action with mutual submission for the sake of the gospel. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture. But in Acts 21, verse 27, this is where things get really heated up. It says that there's some Jews from Asia who are down in Jerusalem, and they're in the temple. Now, if you remember, when I started, remember Paul avoided Asia? He still wanted to meet with key leaders from there, but he didn't want to spend time in the province. And I can't help but wonder if it's these same religious leaders that are now in Jerusalem that had caused problems for Paul before in the past. And they're up to the same stuff. They begin to rally the crowd against Paul, saying that he defiled the temple and he'd brought in unclean Gentiles into the temple and it was a big deal. And we'll pick it up here in verse 30. It says, The whole city was aroused with anger, and the people came running from all directions. Seizing Paul, they dragged him from the temple, and immediately the gates were shut. While they were trying to kill him, wait a minute, stop. Let's back up. 31. While they were trying to kill him, comma, okay, what's happening here? Did you miss that? They laid hands on Paul, dragged him out, and are now trying to kill him. What do you imagine that looks like? I mean, for me, I'm familiar with a disgruntled horde of youth on the other end of a Zoom call when I make a bad judgment call about the game that we're playing. Right? I, I pick a winner, and they're upset, and I see all their faces. I got them on gallery view, and they're all... And, and, and I got to admit, I, my favorite thing to do is they're all tripping and telling me how unfair. I just, I hit that mute all button. And delight fills my soul as I see their angry faces and their mouths is chattering and I'm like, I can't hear you. This mob is with Paul in person. Paul is within reach and they've seized him. How much time do you think is going to pass? How long would it take a mob to kill you as long as god would allow we find here continuing on with verse 31 news reached the commander of the roman troops and the whole city of jerusalem was in an uproar or that the whole city of jerusalem was in an uproar he at once thank goodness took some officers and soldiers and ran down to the crowd when the riders saw the commander and his soldiers they stopped beating paul I would be curious to know how much time delay is there and what state we find Paul in. No one would be more thankful for the efficiency of travel during the Roman era and those Roman roads than Paul would be in that moment. Verse 33, we go on, the commander came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. Then he asked who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd shouted one thing and some another. And since the commander couldn't get uh, an answer because of the uproar, he ordered that Paul be taken to the barracks. When Paul reached the steps, the violence of the mob was so great he had to be carried on by the soldiers. The crowd kept shouting, get rid of him. Now, this is a crazy story. Paul survives. He's rescued by the Roman soldiers. The crowd wants him dead uh, at best and gone at worst. And the Romans show up and they're trying to save Paul's life. They're trying to get him out of there. It's so bad they actually have to hoist him up. And they get to the steps and the crowd is yelling, get rid of him. They want him gone. And something crazy happens. The soldiers, um, what does Paul want? If it's me, I want to get out of there too. Like, get me behind bars to safety. Does he give the people what they want? Nope. Does he give the guards what they want? Not really. He gets the commander's attention, and he speaks Greek to him, and he shares that he's actually a Jew, saying, this angry mob, these are actually my people right? You know, I understand that they're an angry mob who wants to kill me, but praise God, they're my angry mob, right? They're my people. And he requests permission to address the crowd. And crazily enough, the Roman guard gives him permission. And so Paul stands up and he motions to the crowd And when they're quiet, he begins to speak to them in Aramaic, which is their language. And you could have heard a pin drop, I imagine, because the crowd goes deathly quiet. It's like Paul has his own mute all button. And he gets to them. And for the sake of time, I won't go through all the scriptures on this. I'll just share it with you. What is it that Paul shares to this crowd? Well, he shares with them his testimony of his encounter with Jesus Christ. He tells them how he was the most uh, radical Pharisee who was persecuting the, the church, hauling Christians off to put them in prison. Followers of Jesus he was having put to death. And yet, on the road to Damascus, Jesus showed up and caught his attention. And changed the entire course and the entire direction of his life. If you remember from last week, uh, Pastor Dacey's message, she challenged us with two things. To cultivate a heart for the gospel and to cultivate a love for people. And I can't help but see both of those things at work here in Paul in this scene. He has a heart for the gospel because he's sharing it with them. And he has an immense, amazing love that can only come from God for these people that are angry mob that wants them dead and wants nothing to do with them. Yet he's taking the time to share with them the good news of God's grace that's found in Jesus. It's amazing. The religious leaders don't remain very quiet for very long. It's not long and they're in an uproar once again. And it's all over Paul's, uh, in his testimony, he gets to the part where he refers to God sending him to the Gentiles. And the, the crowd are, are the religious supremes, I guess you could say, and they don't like that, this notion that God is, has sent Paul to the Gentiles. And so they get upset and they get angry. And you see where God had always desired the Jewish people to be a light to the Gentiles to point Gentiles to the one true God. But this crowd before him has become separatists and they've become exclusive and they don't want to hear anything Paul has to say. And yet God's mission goes forward in the likes of the Apostle Peter and the the Apostle Paul who are passionate in in telling the good news to Gentiles. That scene ends and and a new scene opens up and we find... um, Paul actually about to be flogged. And this is into chapter 22, uh, verse 25, and it's interesting. They get him into the barracks, and they're going to just flog him and beat him. But as they stretch him out to flog him, verse 25, Paul said to the centurion standing there, is it legal for you to flog a Roman citizen who hasn't even been found guilty? When the centurion heard this, he went to the commander and reported it. What are you going to do, he asked. This man is a Roman citizen. The commander went to Paul and asked, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? Yes, I am, he answered. Then the commander said, I had to pay a lot of money for my citizenship. But I was born a citizen, Paul replied. And those who were about to interrogate him withdrew immediately. The commander himself was alarmed when he realized he had put Paul, a Roman citizen, in chains. You see, back then, being a Roman citizen was a big deal. And it's almost like there was a bit of a hierarchy there. That the the, the greatest thing was to be born a Roman citizen, This guard that's questioning Paul, he had to pay a lot of money. It was very expensive for him to become a Roman citizen. And even then, when he'd attained it, he was still second class. But Paul, this Jewish Pharisee, this lover of Jesus, was born a Roman citizen. And that didn't change no matter where his alliance lied, his commitment to Jesus. And it's interesting, we see Paul use this citizenship uh, to appeal to Caesar later on. And this is the beginning of the final days for Peter, or for Paul, sorry, because now he's caught up in the judicial system, going from one trial to another. And he's appealed all the way to to the emperor himself to hear his plea. But you see, um, these trials actually begin to be more of a continuation of Paul's life work than a defendant's plea for justice. Paul embraces this process of hardship, even though it means jail time, it means house arrest, it means being alone in a prison, which Paul experienced all of those things. But he saw it in keeping with the call that God had on his life to share and testify about the good news about who Jesus was. You see, he understood that the most important thing about him was not his Roman citizenship, but his heavenly citizenship. And he would make use of every opportunity to tell all that he could that there's a God in heaven who loves you, sent his son Jesus to die for your sins, that through faith in him you could have eternal life with God the Father. Paul witnessed to cards everywhere he went, and we hear that the imperial guard, the royal guard, many were hearing about Jesus and turning in faith. And we transition now from the book of Acts, which is written by Luke, to Paul's epitaph in 2 Timothy. And it's interesting because Paul, we see a change that in his early days as he's traveling, he's writing to churches and encouraging churches and church leadership and writing um, Romans and talking a lot about theology. And it seems that towards the end of his life, we find these letters that are called the pastoral epistles that are, he's writing to his friends, his spiritual son. And that's who Timothy is. Timothy is a spiritual son to Paul. And we find in 2 Timothy, Paul writing to him, and we get a notion that the end is very, very close for Paul. Let's look at those verses. 2 Timothy 4, 6 to 8. And this is Paul's epitaph. And you'll notice he considers his present circumstances, his past, and his future. He says, For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time for my departure is near. I've fought the good fight, I've finished the race, I've kept the faith. Verse 8, Now there is in store for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing or who have accepted Christ. You see, Paul at the end of his time, considers his life closely. He looks at his present circumstances. He considers the close of his life and he's ready, willing to be poured out like a drink offering. That word departure there is an interesting word because it doesn't just mean um, like, like death, but it actually strikes a chord of like transition, like a boat being docked and tied up to a dock, that its departure means that it's the throwing off of the ropes and the releasing of the ship to go and do what it's been created to do, what it's meant for. That is how Paul sees his death, as a departure from this life but into glory, into what he was created for. In verse 7 there, he considers the course of his life. He looks back and he sees he was found faithful. And at the end, he considers the crown of his life and he knows that he will be rewarded. I think Paul is someone to be emulated and admired. And that his epitaph here is just amazing in the way that it's not filled with any regret, no holding back, but just total surrender. But you see, Paul didn't just wait to do a great act in his dying moment that would be remembered by everybody. We see that all through the stages of Paul's life, he lived with a passion and a zeal for God that marked his life. You see, he was living out his epitaph every day of his life. And I believe that God calls the same for you and for me. To know that, As we see in the life of Jesus, as he was crucified and suffered, and as we see here in the life of Paul, that he faced many trials and suffering. That suffering and perseverance are all part of the Christian journey. Pain and suffering have always had a way of orientating us to God. I believe that God wants us to look at our present trials, our present suffering, whatever it may be in light of this um, global crisis with COVID or or whatever else is going on in your personal life or in the lives of your family, whatever your trial, God's not just wanting to slap a band-aid on it and saying, just trust that it's all going to work out good in the end. He's wanting to give you some perspective and to draw you into that intimate moment like what Paul shared with the believers of the Ephesus church when he was seeing them for the last time. To be present there with you in the midst of your suffering, with the understanding that this is one of the ways that God uses to conform us into the likeness of Jesus. At this time, I'm going to close our service, but we're going to take up communion. And so uh, if you need to, feel free to hit pause and go grab some elements. Um, feel free to use whatever you have uh, on hand. It doesn't, it doesn't have to be freshly baked bread or grape juice. You can use whatever's on hand. In fact, I have no doubt that my children at home are likely eating some old uh, Easter candy that's left over, quite likely. Um, but water, milk, something to eat, something to drink. You see... This is a great opportunity for us to respond today because it takes our current situation and we look back and remember what Christ had gone through. And the Bible tells us that Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. He gives thanks, he breaks it, and he says that this is my body broken for you. Given for you. And in my mind, I always see the bread as it's being broken and torn and offered up as being the way that Jesus' body suffered and died through the process of crucifixion. He went through and endured what we should have, but He did it for our sake. Let's pray. Lord, we face suffering and brokenness every day, but we also know that You suffered and you persevered. Jesus, would you help us do the same? Would you partake of the bread together with me? He said how dry your mouth gets with one cracker. In the same way, Jesus takes up the cup, And he says, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Whenever you drink it, do this in remembrance of me. Let's pray. Jesus, we remember your sacrifice and we remember your example. We are so grateful that your blood being spilled on that cross brought about a new covenant for us to be in relationship with God. And God, we approach your table with grateful hearts knowing that you paid the ultimate sacrifice. We thank you for your sacrifice and we receive it. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's partake of the cup together. Well, bless you as you go. Thank you so much for joining us on our service. I pray that you have a blessed week and that you see your trials and you see your suffering in light of the notion that God is doing a good work in and through it. He's conforming you to be more like Jesus a little bit every day. God bless. Hey, we're so glad you joined us today. We hope you stay connected with us online on our website, Facebook, and YouTube throughout the week. If you want prayer right now, we have prayer teams standing by ready to pray with you. Call in or send us an email. If you're new, check out our website to learn more about us, but also go to hillcrestmj.com slash connect card and fill out that card. We'd love to get to know you. Most importantly, if you decided to become a follower of Jesus today, firstly, we are so excited for you. But secondly, would you tell someone whether that be someone close to you, someone at the church, or even call into our prayer teams right now. This is the most important decision you'll make in your lifetime, and we want to celebrate with you and help you navigate those next steps. Again, thanks for joining us. Stay connected with us online, and we'll see you next week.